The following is a message by Pastor Caleb Bunch of Redeeming Grace Fellowship. For more information about RGF, please visit our website at www.rgf.church. Please feel free to make copies of this sermon or distribute to friends and family, but please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way. Please open your Bibles to Mark chapter 12. Today we're going to be hearing from verses 28 through verses 34. We're continuing, of course, in our series in the book of Mark, and once again we are going to see Jesus confronted in the temple courts. Verse 28. And one of the scribes came up and heard them disputing with one another, and seeing that he answered them well, asked him, Which commandment is the most important of all? Jesus answered, The most important is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, with all your mind and with all your strength. The second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. And the scribe said to him, you are right, teacher. You have truly said that he is one and there is no one other no other besides him, and to love him with all the heart and with all the understanding and with all the strength, and to love one's neighbor as oneself is much more than all whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. And when Jesus saw that he answered wisely, he said to him, you are not far from the kingdom of God. And after that, no one dared to ask him any more questions. Please join me as we pray that God would bless this sermon this morning. Father, I pray that this morning you would do an amazing work, a powerful work in our hearts. God, it is an impossible thing for me to accomplish anything here without you. Lord, I pray that your word would go forth powerfully, that you would utilize me and my weaknesses to bring about great change. God, I pray that the Holy Spirit might be affecting our minds and our hearts, causing us to understand the word and to apply it. Please, Lord, allow us this morning to have a great passion to live out what we are reading. Not that we would hear and understand and simply walk away, but that we would have feet to what we see this morning and put it into action. God, we need you for this. We desire that the church would reflect what we read today. Please, God, let us be a lighthouse for the gospel because of what we see in these words. And we do this, Lord, because we love you and we desire to honor you. Please, Lord, by the power of your spirit and for the name of Christ, we ask that you would do this for us this morning. Amen. Our outline this morning is going to be four very simple points. We're going to look at the good scribe. Then we'll consider the great Shema. Thirdly, we'll consider the greater sacrifice. And finally, we'll close with the guilty sinner. Let's start by getting to know the man who asked the question in this text, the good scribe. In the verses that I read to you just a few moments ago, Jesus is approached by a man who is described as a scribe. Every time that we have ever encountered one of these men in the entire book of Mark, they have always been presented as enemies of Jesus, and they are set on his destruction. These scribes were the ones who would copy the law. They were very well regarded. Sometimes they're even called lawyers because the law was the Old Testament for the Israelites. There was no distinction between the law and the Bible. They were one and the same. So these men, they were considered to be very wise scholars of the law, Yet they are always considered enemies of Christ in the book of Mark until now. 
Not only that, though, this scribe enters into a story by asking the fourth in a series of questions. It's like Jesus has been in the process of being interrogated by one person after another. Mark 11.18 tells us the motivation behind those questions. It says, And the chief priests and the scribes heard it, and they were seeking a way to destroy him, that is Jesus, for they feared him, because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. So they have jealousy about him. They don't like Jesus, and it says here their intention is destroying him. So as Jesus spends an evening in Bethany, the Sanhedrin gathered together to determine what is the best way to make Jesus look foolish or to make him say something blasphemous in front of a large crowd so that everyone will reject him and so that they will turn away from him and back to us. So when Jesus returns the next day to the temple courts, the chief priests and the elders and some of the scribes were the very first to confront Jesus. They asked him, where did you receive your authority, Jesus? And these power-hungry individuals had gained their positions of authority. They had gained power by leveraging God's word and the, the sacrifices and elements of worship that God had commanded the Israelites. They had leveraged that to gain their own power and authority. And now they're asking Jesus, where did you get your authority from? But he refused to answer them unless they first answered his question. And in doing that, he showed that he actually had the authority in that situation. The teacher is the one who can refuse to answer the question, not the student. And then after they had been sufficiently embarrassed by their failure to destroy Christ, they tagged the next team. It was a group of Pharisees and a group of Herodians. The Pharisees and the Herodians are basically opposites. The Pharisees represent the height of legalism, and the Herodians represent the height of antinomianism. The Pharisees thought that their good works and adherence to the law made them righteous before God, and the Herodians thought that their political connections with Herod were enough to protect them from any danger, so they lived however they wanted, with no care towards God's law whatsoever. These guys are opposites, yet together they come to Jesus and ask a question about taxes. And Jesus answered their question about taxation by saying, render to Caesar what is Caesar. And even more importantly, Jesus destroys both the system of the Pharisees' legalism and the system of the Herodians' antinomianism by declaring and render to God what is God's. Herodians, you think you can live however you want? You can't. Render yourself to God. You know, you Pharisees, you think that you are righteous because of what you're doing? You're not. Render yourself to God. He doesn't want just these things that you're doing. He wants you. In short, he wants everything about you. Do not keep anything back from him. And then the Sadducees took their turn. They sought to trap Jesus by asking a question about heaven. This was highly hypocritical because they don't even believe in heaven. They have no regard at all for anything spiritual. They don't believe in, in anything that is supernatural. They're essentially skeptics. They were practical atheists. They didn't believe in heaven or hell or miracles or angels or demons. They don't believe in any of this stuff. So why are they asking about heaven? They're simply seeking to trick Jesus. And Jesus told them plainly that they do not know the scripture, nor do they know the power of God. Then he graciously went on to explain how they had misunderstood the scripture. But now we reach this fourth man. This individual who is not with a group, not with a crowd, not sent from the Sanhedrin, and he is presented differently. He does not seem to fit into the same category as the scribes who came to Jesus in asking about his origin of power. <clears throat> According to Mark twelve twenty eight, 
He just happened to walk here into the dispute, and he heard them talking. He had clearly not been a party to that late-night Sanhedrin conversation. He had not, does not seem to understand the political weight of the scenario taking place in front of him. He does not seem to know the intention is to sabotage Jesus or to trap him because he doesn't do any of that in any way. In fact, this man seems to recognize the great wisdom that Jesus is speaking. Listen to how the rogue scribe is perceived by Jesus, or how he perceives Jesus here in verse 18. It says, and seeing that he answered them well. In other words, the scribe perceived that Jesus had answered well. It seems as though he views Jesus as a wise and good teacher. It shows us that the scribe's motive for asking this question was much different than those who came before him. One of the most common words in the ministry world right now, especially pastoral ministry and church planting, is the word relevant. You need relevant music. You need relevant preaching. You need relevant branding. I'm very hesitant to use that word. I rarely ever, if ever, have used it here at the church, and here's why. By relevant, what most people are really saying is trendy. Make sure that you're using modern lingo. Make sure that you're preaching in a manner that clicks with people. Many outlets are encouraging pastors to model model their sermons after TED Talks. You might think I'm joking. I'm not. I was sent an email just about a year ago from somebody who I love as a brother in Christ who is trying to show me eight different ways to model a sermon after TED Talks. Don't use a pulpit. Don't use notes. Don't quote scripture. Don't read from, from anything. And especially don't make people feel guilty. These things don't help make a sermon more relevant. In fact, I believe these ideas are a myriad of the ways that we actually suppress what is important and diminish the church's view of scripture, and we cause people to miss what is truly relevant, the Bible, the gospel, Jesus, our King. We miss it because we water it down. I'm also hesitant to say that any passage of scripture is relevant because by saying that, you're essentially saying that something is more relevant than everything else. So when we come to this passage today, I want to talk about relevance a little bit because we're, we're talking about the weightiest, most valuable part of the law. What is the most important command? Well, I also want to say it in the sense that I don't use the term relevant often. In fact, maybe never have I used it here. All scripture is God-breathed. All scripture is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction and training in righteousness, that the man of God may be equipped fully for every good work. That's every word of the Bible. It is all worth hearing and understanding. So I hope to preach from the Bible. That makes it relevant for us to hear. So every passage is relevant as long as I'm teaching from the Bible. But this passage in particular might have a very poignant resonancy with us. Let me explain why. There are times when a passage will present a character or will state a command that is more relatable to us because it hits right where we're hurting. It connects with where we are sinning. It hits close to home. We see ourselves in the failures of the individuals, and in that way, this passage might prove to be one of the most relatable to us as a church. There are many people who use the Bible and who use God's name and systems of religion to gain their own power, like the chief priests and the scribes. We talked about them and their interaction, but I don't think that most people here fall into that category. All of us here are inclined to either the legalism of the the Pharisees or the antinomianism of the Herodians, probably a little bit of both. 
And we all have a need of constantly being reminded that we are not our own. We have been bought with a price so that we must give ourselves completely to God. But I think intellectually, at least, we all know that pretty well. There are many people in our world who are skeptics, like the Sadducees. They doubt God's existence. They doubt his love. They doubt the Bible. They doubt that they will ever be held accountable for their works. So they live as though those things are not true. There are many of us here who struggle occasionally with doubts of various kinds, and we step up to the line of skepticism, but the grace of God always draws us back. And I am thankful for that. And I'm thankful that as far as I can tell, most of us in this room do not fall into the category of skeptics. So I do think that's relevant. I think it's important. I think it's significant. But now we've arrived at this good scribe, this individual who is smart, He knows the Bible. He seems to understand the truth. He knows the right answer. It appears that he even likes Jesus. He wants to be close to Jesus. He has an interest in the teachings of Jesus. But as we are going to see as this sermon unfolds, he is by no means a disciple of Jesus. Please look carefully at the question the scribe asks in verse 28. He says, which commandment is most important of all? This might seem like a random question. Why is he asking that? It makes absolute sense, though, in light of the common theological dialogue of Jesus' day. The Torah, the first five books of the Bible, contains 613 separate commandments. And the Jewish religious leaders had meticulously studied every single one of them, and they had categorized them into two separate groups— On the one hand, you have the heavy laws, and on the other side, you have the lighter laws. The heavy laws are the ones that cost you something. It requires effort. It requires time. It might require travel or for you to give away your wealth. And then you have the lighter laws, which often they they dealt with things that are in your thoughts or your your motivations. They considered those to be minor because they're easier to to do, although in reality, they're not easier to do. So the question often arose in discussion in their theology, if there are these heavy laws, which one is the heaviest? Which one is the weightiest? Which one, that's where we get our word glory. Which one is the word most glorious? Because whichever one sinks down to the bottom must serve as a foundation for the others. The way that you answer this question will tell you a great deal about your understanding of theology. So it was a common occurrence for the theologians to ask one another this question in order to gauge how closely are our systems of belief. If you answer in a way that seems right to me, then I probably align with you on almost everything else. But if you answer in a different way, we probably disagree on a myriad of things. So this man testing Jesus' theology is doing so in in a very simple, normal, not cynical way. Let's consider now, the way that Jesus answers him with point number two, the great Shema. Now, I hope you see the value of knowing the answer to this question. I hope you see the great value that the Bible does not leave us to wonder or to guess at what is the most important of the commandments. If this is indeed the greatest command, I also hope that you will not gloss over it. So allow me to read it again and allow me to read it to you slowly. Jesus answered, The most important is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your mind, and with all your strength. The second is this, You shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no command 
greater than these. I think this answer would have been initially very surprising to the good scribe. I think he would have been stunned that Jesus answered in this way. I imagine that he was anticipating some long, drawn-out argument with probably a reference to Zephaniah or some obscure prophet. But instead, Jesus quotes what is commonly known as the great Shema. Traditionally, Hebrew prayers and Hebrew repetitions, which are scripture memory passages, they are usually referred to by the first word in that prayer or scripture memory passage. And the first word of the great Shema is the word in Hebrew, Shema, which means hear, hear, O Israel. Now the very next words in that passage from Deuteronomy chapter 6 says this, You shall teach them diligently to your children. And shall talk of them when you sit in your house, and when you walk by the way, and when you lie down, and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. These things, the great Shema, don't forget it. Now, back in May, I traveled to Belarus to serve in a ministry alongside Pastor Ed Moore and a small group of people from North Shore Baptist Church. And my flight path was not direct to Belarus. Rather, I traveled to Istanbul first and then up to Belarus. And as I was traveling from JFK to Istanbul, my flight had to be made up of at least, at minimum, 75% Orthodox Jews. And as we were traveling, the sun began to come up somewhere over the middle of the Atlantic Ocean. And as it did, all of them stood, all of the men stood and crowded into the aisles and began to wrap their phylacteries around their hands, binding them on their arm and wrapping them around their head to put it on their forehead. And they, in Hebrew, recited the great Shema. They did that then in the plain. They have been doing that as a people for generations. This is not something new. This is how the Israelites during Christ's day lived. They would wake in the morning at sunrise and they would repeat this. And in the evening, as the sun went down, they would repeat this. It was at least twice a day that they would refer to these words. It is probably the most well-known verse in the entire Old Testament to them. My point is that this is not some random, obscure passage that Jesus references. It is their favorite, perhaps, Bible verse. So let's take a look at the content of the great Shema a little bit closer. Jesus said, the greatest commandment is that you shall love. You shall love the Lord your God. You shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart and with all of your soul and with all of your mind and with all of your strength. I think as we read the New Testament and you see the Pharisees and you see the scribes and you see the Sadducees, their approach to God is not one of love. Their approach to God is one of duty, responsibility, is one of legalistic action. I'm going to do what the Old Testament says. It is not one of love. This is essentially, by the way, these four things, love the Lord with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. These are the four corners of the human compass. They are the four categories of what makes you who you are. Your heart in the scripture represents your affections. It represents your emotions. The word soul here can mean the things that make you a living, eternal being. Your mind includes your thinking, it includes your understanding, your reasoning, and your strength is a reference to your energy and to your skill and to all of your power or effort. What else is there? There's nothing. There's absolutely nothing left that doesn't fall into one of these categories. 
So Jesus is emphatically telling this scribe, and by extension telling you and I, the most important command is to love God with every ounce of who you are. Now, I don't have to tell you that this is not natural. This is not something that you wake up in the morning with a desire or intention to do. Please turn with me to 1 John chapter 4. I would like you to, to kind of keep your finger there. We're going to jump back and forth to this because in many ways, John chapter 4 operates as a commentary on these verses. But it goes so far as to tell us not only that we must love God, but how it is that we can come to love God. Notice verse 10 says this, In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Now, as we consider that, we have to understand the order. Genuine love for God cannot be simply conjured up by our own effort. It's impossible. Our love for God is a responsive love. It is the reaction to the regenerate heart when it sees that God has poured out lavishly his love on us through the death of his own son. Now, I don't know if you've ever had this happen, but sometimes you'll go to the doctor, you know, and they'll They'll have you sit on the table. They'll take out this little tool, and they'll hit you on the knee, and your knee will kind of do this thing, right? Pop your leg out. They're checking for your reflexes. I guess they're making sure that you're alive. Is It's really important that when the doctor does this, that they hit you in the right place. It's really important that they are actually targeting the correct location, because if they hit you in the stomach, you're probably going to respond, but not the way that you're supposed to. It's not going to reveal your reflexes. In terms of love... What are we responding to? We don't have love on our own, according to this verse. It is a reflex of something. But what are we responding to? It spells it out very simply in these verses. 1 John 4.10 In this is love. Not that we have loved us, but loved him, but that he loved us. And it tells us the specifics of how he has loved us. And he sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. That is what we are reflexively responding to. Our love is a reflex as we respond to the fact that Jesus Christ died on the cross cross to propitiate our sins. That is where our love comes from and nowhere else. Consider 1 John chapter 4, verse 15 and 16. It says, Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him and he in God. So we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love, and whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. This love is not something that we can conjure or build or buy. It is something that can only come. Genuine, true love, Christ-like love, comes as a reflex of trusting in the Son of God and confessing him as our Savior. As it says in 1 John here, unless we confess that Jesus is the Son of God, and implied in, in that is that we believe everything that naturally flows from that truth. The sad reality is that you and I know a lot of people that profess they love God. I know so many people who will tell you, I love God. They almost say it flippantly. Like, hey, sure, I love God. They don't know God. They don't know God. They cannot love him because they don't actually understand the gospel But Jesus does not stop after informing here our good scribe about the greatest commandment. He gives him a bonus. Not only what is the greatest, I'll also tell you what the second greatest one is. Do you want to know? He says, that following phrase directly after, he says, the second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. 
Now, in relation to this command and, and its relationship with the first, I want to take a minute to consider five key truths that we need to remember as a church. First, Jesus does not inform us as to the definition of neighbor in this passage. What does it mean to be my neighbor? However, elsewhere in the parable of the Good Samaritan, he does teach us about what it means to love your neighbor. Your neighbor is literally anyone within your proximity. It can be anybody. Therefore, this is a call to universally love even the people that you deem most unlovable. So everyone that you see is your neighbor. So you were called to love all. Secondly, Jesus does not tell you that you need to learn to love yourself. This is a common teaching that's becoming more and more prevalent in our modern world. But it doesn't teach that anywhere in the Bible. Let's just get real for a moment. Nobody needs to teach me and nobody needs to teach you how to love yourself. It's assumed by Christ and assumed by all of Scripture that you desperately love yourself already. You will naturally do whatever it takes to give yourself pleasure and feed your own appetites. But God, he calls us to project our love away from self and towards others, to remove that self-centered nature of our love and to instead give to others selflessly. Paul sums it up in this way in Romans 13, 10. He says, love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. Thirdly, I want you to see that you cannot truly love others unless you first love God. There are several reasons why this is not the greatest commandment. It's the second. If we make this the greatest commandment, we're actually committing idolatry. We are putting someone above God. They are replacing him as the highest place of honor in our hearts. Loving others is the second greatest command because God requires and deserves to be first in our lives. But loving others is also the second greatest command because it flows out of the first. It is second because it comes from the first. Allow me to send you back to 1 John chapter 4 for a moment. This time we're going to start at verse 7, and I'm going to do some running commentary here. It says this, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. This verse tells us that the origin of love is God, and the landing place for love is on others. Continuing on, it says, Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. One of the necessary elements of salvation is that you will begin to have love for other people. In this is the love of God, and in this the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only Son to the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. And then it continues, Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. Arguing from the greater to the lesser, if God has poured out his love on us, what are we doing not loving other people? We should also love others. What is the impetus behind our love? God's love for us. Now jump down to verse 20 with me. It says, if anyone says, I love God, yet hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. You cannot do the second great commandment unless 
you have the first. And if you do know and obey the first, it will naturally result in obedience to the second. Love is not only a possible result of our salvation, it is the definite result of our salvation. It is not potential, but certain. If we have truly been saved by God's love, then we will necessarily live a life that expresses that kind of love to other people. Fourth, these two laws encapsulate every other command, both New and Old Testament combined. The first four of the Ten Commandments, I just want to take the Ten Commandments as a test here. If you look at the first four of them, you will see that they fall into that first category of, of love the Lord with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Consider what they are. First, you uh, love God first. Do not make idols. Uh, do not take the Lord's name in vain. Keep the Sabbath. These are all vertical. They are in relationship to God himself, keeping the greatest commandment. And then you take a shift where everything begins to turn away from those and becomes horizontal. You're dealing with the fifth command, honor your father and mother. Sixth, you shall not kill. Seven, you shall not commit adultery. Eight, do not steal. Nine, do not bear false witness. And 10, do not covet. All of these are against other people. Yet, we notice that when somebody breaks those, they're actually also breaking the first. David committed adultery and murder. Yet he says to God, against you and you alone have I sinned. If you break the first, you will naturally break the second. And if you break the second, you are already breaking the first. These are intrinsically connected pillars that uphold all of our faith. The Old Testament prophets, by the way, never created any new laws. If you go through and you read the prophets, you, you, you read what they have to say, they always just point you back to the law, the first five books of the Bible. But in all of them, they only ever accuse the people of Israel of two sins. Only two. If you go through all of the oracles against all of the different people, they, they speak about the expressions of it, but it boils down to two things. You have idolatry and you have injustice. Idolatry is breaking the great commandment that is vertical, and then breaking the second, which is horizontal, is injustice. Not loving God properly, idolatry. Not loving people properly, injustice. These two laws are the most important because they summarize everything else that the Bible will ever teach us. That's why Jesus says there is no commandment greater than these. So fifth and finally, you and I break these commandments every day. There is no one here who has ever lived one 24-hour period without breaking both of these things. Christ himself has told us that these two laws are the pillars of the others. It's like you had two jobs, two jobs, yet we don't do them. You and I fail to live up to this standard. Every single time that you sin, you are essentially telling God that you don't care about his standards. I'll live however I want. Thank you very much. I don't need your instructions. I could care less about your guidance. I am in no way in need of your leadership. So just back off, God. I'll do whatever I want. That's what our hearts are saying every time that we sin. And every time you sin against another person, whether that's gossip or slander or lies or being rude or impatient or being sinfully angry or having evil thoughts of any kind toward them or lusting, you're breaking one of the foundational commandments of God. You are called to live in harmony and love towards all other people. Now keep in mind all these things as we move on now to our third point, the greater sacrifice. After Jesus answers the scribe, we see an interesting response from this man. Look at verse 32 with me, and the scribe speaks back to Jesus. It says, And the scribe said to him, You are right, teacher. 
How often do you see anyone responding in the Bible by saying, Jesus, guess what? You're right. He says, you have truly said that he is one and there is no other besides him. And to love him with all the heart and with all the understanding and with all the strength and to love one's neighbor as oneself is much more than all the whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. Now, I wish that I could just transport us back in time so that we could be kind of a fly on the wall to see this man's reaction. I would love to know his facial expressions. I would love to know how quickly he responds. I imagine him standing there for a moment, stroking his long beard and waiting and thinking and, and finally saying, yes, teacher, you got it right, as he nods in agreement. The good scribe answers in a way that is very customary. It's very normal for his day. When you agreed with somebody, the way that you would respond is by repeating back to them what they had said just slightly differently so that you make sure that you understand the nuance of it. The good scribe essentially repeats everything that Jesus says, and he adds, this is much more than all the whole burnt offerings. This is much better than the burnt offerings. Now remember where they are. Jesus is standing in the outer courts of the temple. This conversation is not a private dialogue. It's not like you going to a coffee shop and discussing something over a small table. No, this is a public dialogue. It is loud. It is a public exchange across a courtyard. And we see throughout this chapter that as people come and approach Jesus, they're not getting right in his face. They're standing far back and they're speaking to him so that all of the crowds can hear. Because remember, their goal is to discredit him before everybody. But don't just remember where they are. Remember when they are. They are just days before the Passover will take place when lambs will be slaughtered by the hundreds of thousands just a few feet away from where they're standing. People all around Jesus are selling animals that are being prepared to be sacrificed. Just on the other side of the wall where Jesus is, there are priests that are tying and shaving and preparing lambs for the slaughter. There would have been endless evidence of animal sacrifice all around them. And this man says, yeah, what you just said? That's more important than all of this stuff. What you just said, these two laws, that's greater than all of this stuff. He rightfully declares these things, these sacrifices to be insignificant in comparison to having love for God and for others. But what the scribe did not know is that the true Passover lamb was standing right in front of him. He didn't understand that Jesus himself would be the final sacrifice. He was right to say that all of these sacrifices ultimately have minimal or no value. The reason that God does not consider our sacrifices, our efforts, our works to be of primary importance, the reason he doesn't see our law-keeping as the most significant is because those things could never accomplish anything. The Old Testament sacrifices were simply a picture pointing forward to the actual work that would be done by Jesus. The sacrifices were designed to remind people of their sin. Consider the words of Hebrews chapter 10, verses 3 through 4. It says, But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year. It's to go back in your brain. You're a sinner. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. So every year you're to remember, and every year you're to sacrifice But these blood offerings can do nothing to wash away my sin. What can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of bulls and goats? Absolutely not. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Jesus was not only the lamb who was to be slain. He was also the high priest that was to offer that sacrifice. Consider once again from the book of Hebrews, this time chapter 7, verses 23 through 27. It says, this makes Jesus 
the guarantor of a better covenant. What is it? The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He has no need, like those high priests, to offer daily sacrifices, first for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all. When? When he offered up himself. Jesus is looking at this man, the scribe, who is telling him, these things, these commands are more significant than any of the other works. They're more significant even than the sacrifices, which most of the Jews would have probably answered as the greatest of the laws. Yet Jesus, the great high priest and the great sacrifice, is standing there recognizing that, yes, that's right, your sacrifices are of no value, but mine is. Your sacrifices can only point to mine. You have nothing to offer God, but Christ offered himself on our behalf. That is why we are called simply to love. Let's close now with our fourth and final point, the guilty sinner. Look at Mark 12, verse 34 once again. It says, And when Jesus saw that he answered wisely, he said to him, You are not far from the kingdom of God. And after that, no one dared to ask him any more questions. First, just as a side note, if you want to know how to have wisdom, just answer back to God the way that he tells you. Just respond by repeating him, and that's wisdom. But at first glance here, this may appear to be a glowing affirmation of this scribe. It's certainly much better than the way Jesus responded to the other groups of people, right? But there is an infinite gap, an infinite gap between being near Christ and being a disciple of Christ. There is an infinite gap of being close to him and close to his kingdom and being part of it. My dad's a hunter. I'm not. He likes to kill deer and whatever. I, I personally hate the idea of this. Going and sitting in a tree... That's fine. Sitting there for five hours, not fine. Sitting there in the cold, even worse. And my dad likes to bow hunt, which is even more challenging, I guess, than shooting with a gun. So when I was a teenager, I think 12 or 13 years old, my dad got me a compound bow. And although I didn't like hunting, I actually really enjoyed practicing shooting with a compound bow. It was really fun and enjoyable. So I had these big foam targets that I would shoot at. The thing about archery is you actually get points if you don't hit the middle of the target, if you're in a competition. You actually get points if you're close. But that's not the way that it works in real life. That's not the way that it works spiritually. It's, what Jesus is talking about here is like bow hunting from 200 yards and shooting at a flea. There is no room for error here. You've heard a lot of people say that I've almost done something. I almost went to Harvard. I almost played professional hockey. I almost went to London. <laughs> but you didn't. You didn't do those things. And I, I, I always hear those people say that, and my initial inclination is to think, well, but you didn't. But I don't say that because that would be rude. But you didn't. Almost doesn't count. I have a friend uh, who would always tell me that close only counts in horseshoes and hand grenades. It doesn't count if you're just close. And this man is close. He's close to Jesus. He says, you're not far. 
But that statement is a dangerous one because there is no margin for error. This man is almost in, but the Bible does not tell us if he ever made it. The Bible doesn't say whether or not he ever came to be a disciple of Jesus. Now, I believe that Mark actually intentionally, under the inspiration of the Spirit, leaves this fate of this scribe open because I think that we're supposed to wrestle with this. Am I in or am I just near the kingdom? So we too need to dwell in the tension of this moment. As I said earlier, I think that this is far more relevant to us in the sense that we can probably relate to this guy in this context far more than we relate to the others. It would be a terrible tragedy if there was anyone here who consistently heard the gospel and they thought that they were saved because they were near to the kingdom. Perhaps you're like this good scribe. You know the Bible. You have an interest in what Jesus has to say. You, you study it. You memorize it. You recognize his teachings to be wise and even to be accurate. But you're standing at the precipice of faith, staring at the cross, unwilling to repent and fully believe. So I want to ask you today, are you in or are you near the kingdom? Search your heart. There will be many on the last day who say, Lord, Lord, did I not do? And then fill in the blank with all of this religious stuff. And he's going to respond to them, depart from me. I never knew you. I never knew you. Please notice the scribe's response to Jesus. He says, you are right, teacher. It's almost as if he's telling teacher, uh, telling Jesus, congratulations, teacher, you passed my test. But Jesus' response is chilling to me. It is stunning to me. He is basically saying, I don't need to pass your test. You need to pass mine. And right now he tells this man, you're failing. You're close, but you haven't gotten it right. So I've told you that love is a reflex of being hit directly in the heart by the gospel. But I do not want to assume this morning that anybody here knows the gospel. I don't want to take for granted that you understand the glorious truth that is revealed to us in Christ through, God, uh, through the scripture. The Bible describes us as enemies. It tells us that we are helplessly dead in our sins and that we are hopelessly dedicated to a rebellion against God. Romans chapter 3 even tells us no one seeks God. That's you, that's me, in ourselves. We might think that we're seeking for something, but if it's not motivated by God himself, we are genuinely searching for our own pleasure. That describes the natural position of your heart. It describes the natural position of mine. We don't seek God. No one loves him. Rather, we are all worthy of an eternity under his punishment and his wrath. But the good news of the gospel is this, that God who knew us, who knows your heart better than you know your heart, who sees your sin more clearly than you ever could, who knows exactly what you have done, and he knows everything that you're ever going to do, and that God who knows us sent his son to die for sinners like you and me. He sent his son who was very much unlike us. While we were yet sinners by nature and sinners by choice, he sent the perfect son who was perfect by nature and perfect by choice. And Jesus came to earth for the purpose of dying on the cross. It was not some random act that happened for no reason. It was not a surprise to God that this took place. He came to die to be the one pure sacrifice for sinners. But he did not remain in the tomb. He did not remain dead. He rose on that third day by the power of God and lives to be a savior for sinners like you and me. I can't stand here and teach you about the Bible based on my own righteousness. I'm worthless before God. I have no righteousness on my own and neither do you. 
But if you trust in Jesus Christ, the Bible teaches that there is a great exchange that takes place, that he will remove from you all of your sin and give you all of his righteousness. Jesus in my place. So I want to tell you today that if you are near, that's not good enough. You need to be in the kingdom. So I ask you today that if you know Christ intellectually, I want you to know him spiritually. I want you to place your trust in him, repent and believe. I want to close with just one quick story. I think that I've told you this before. I can't honestly remember. But when I was living in uh, Kentucky and I was serving in a church just across the river in Indiana, uh, there was a man who I had not met, but I heard stories of, who he had been a Christian, a professing believer, he said, for many years, since he was a teenager. He was now in his early 90s, but when he was 88 years old, he realized he was not saved. And he was concerned about how he should, should move forward with this. He realized... I've never actually placed my faith in Christ. I don't actually believe the gospel, and I never have. He had been serving as a deacon for almost 60 years in his church, yet he did not know Jesus Christ in a saving way. And he was embarrassed to come forward and tell, I don't really have a saving relationship with Jesus Christ. But one of the most glorious things that these these people had told me about, I didn't experience this personally, but they told me one of the most glorious things that had ever happened was when this man who was in his, I think he was 88 years old when this happened, said, I'm, I'm sorry, I've been lying this whole time. I don't know Jesus. And he came to Christ and he placed his faith in Jesus and he believed and even though he'd been baptized in his 20s, was baptized again in his 80s and he lived for Jesus Christ until he died in his early 90s. Jesus will save to the uttermost. And there is nothing that is worth running from him or, or pushing it aside. Don't wait. You don't know how long you have. This man lived to his 90s. You might not. And I don't want to guilt you or fear you into anything. But just I want you to know, being near is not good enough. Trust in Christ. Believe in him. And repent of your sin and you will be saved. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for this wonderful passage. I thank you for this encounter. Lord, I, I hope this man got saved. I hope that this scribe came to know you. But Lord, I especially pray for those who are here. God, I've heard the testimonies of many Lord, I I pray that you would cause us all to be confirmed in that, to know that we truly have faith in Jesus Christ, to be in the kingdom and not near it. Lord, if there's anyone here who knows in their mind right now that they are not in the kingdom of God, God, I pray that you would break their heart. Do not give them rest again until they trust you. Cause them to see their great desperate state. Lord, I pray that no one in this building would spend eternity under your wrath. Please, God, I pray that you would use your word today to convict us, to change us, to help us grow, to be more like Christ. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.